The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. My favorite superhero of all of the superheroes, um, I'd have to say my favorite one is Batman. I'm not exactly sure um, why it's, it's Batman. Um, in fact, um, true story, we, I met someone coming to our church once, and his name is, is uh, Bruce Wayne. And um, I, when I met him, I was like, like, the Bruce Wayne? Like, you know, anyway, I'm still not sure. But um, anyway, but my favorite um, superhero is Batman. If you are a fan of Batman, then you know those representing Batman, um, it's been a bumpy ride along the way, okay? And uh, let me just give you an example. I think we have a picture of of some of history's (sighs) Batman. I'm just glad we're not in 1949 anymore. That was a rough year for the Batman, okay? That That was tough, okay? You know, the early years um, was not so menacing, to be honest, okay? The 80s brought a needed change into the 90s. There's a lot of debate in the 90s. And then we got it right with Christian Bale for a while. That just kind of, you know, we we kind of established some things. That was encouraging. But I would would have to say, of all of the Batmen, um, I think my favorite uh, of of recently is not even represented here. I I think my favorite is is this Batman of all of them. I think we finally got it right, you know? I just really captures the spirit of Batman there. And so, um, but Batman, I, I'm not exactly sure what it is I love about Batman. Maybe it's the dark persona or the gadgets or, you know, the Bat Cave or the Batmobile. I'm not sure what it is, but there's, he's kind of a mysterious character and he's unique as a superhero because there's this lingering question about Batman. Is he actually good? That's kind of the crux of his character because a lot of what he does aligns with the law and with justice, but there's still a lingering question of whether or not he's good. When Batman, this goes all the way back to the very first comic when he was introduced in 1939. Batman goes all the way back to 1939 when he's first introduced. The comic crescendos in the end. He punches out this bad guy. The bad guy falls over a railing and right into like a vat of acid or something like that and dies, okay? Which is just kind of a classic kind of comic book way to die, okay? And when he falls in, Batman, this brand new character on the comic uh, scene, he looks over into the vat of acid and he says, a fitting end for someone such as that. Which again, okay, none of that's surprising. That's just kind of par for the course for the comics. But that's not exactly justice. Like he's not really brought him into justice, he just kind of killed him. And that's kind of really what marks the character of Batman. He's a vigilante. He's a rogue, okay? And it explains what is really under the surface a few months later when the comics, uh, like in November of 1939, the issue that explained his origin story explained what's going on underneath. This was the, this was the image um, of that comic. So November 1939, and in there they take two pages to introduce the origin story of Batman, It's one of the most memorable origin stories. Batman is born to the Wayne family, Bruce Wayne. um, The Waynes are are, uh, very wealthy socialites. They own the Wayne Enterprises. And there's a few different variations of the story, but fundamentally what happens is um, Bruce and his two parents, Bruce is a child, his two parents are leaving a theater, 
and a man jumps out to mug them and ends up killing both of his parents. He shoots his parents. And right there, um, Bruce Wayne is instantly orphaned. He's had this terrible trauma. He's raised the rest of his childhood by a man named Alfred. But in this, at the end of the comic, it explains then as he grows into an adult, what makes him tick. And this is what he says. This, I'm just reading it straight out how it is in the comic. He says, I swear, talking about his parents, I swear to avenge their deaths by spending the rest of my life warring on all criminals. That's his like manifesto. I am at war with criminals. And then he's got to think of, you know, what is his theme? You know, what's, his, what's it going to be? And so he says this. Criminals are a superstitious, cowardly lot, so my disguise must be able to strike terror into their hearts. I must be a creature of the night, black, terrible. And at that, he's sitting by his fire in, um, in uh, Wayne Manor. He's wearing a smoking jacket. And through the open window flies a bat. And at that moment, his inspiration strikes. He says, I will become a bat. And that's the beginning of Batman, how they explain it. Now, there's something I want you to see in here that's interesting. He becomes a superhero. He fights crime. But I want you to see his motivation. He says, I want to go to war against criminals, which is different than saying, I really love Gotham City. That's different. It's just a little bit, it's a little bit different, but it's just enough to be off base. It's one thing I'm going to go to war against criminals. It's another thing to say, I love Gotham so much that I'm not going to let anyone do it harm. And so out of my love for Gotham, I'm, I'm going to fight against crime. No, that's, that's not what he says. He's going to do war against criminals. And so here's what happens. Often what Batman does aligns with justice. But there are moments where what he does, because at his core, there's something a little off base. So there are moments in the whole saga of Batman where he's very, very far from justice and what's right altogether. Now let me bring that over to what we're talking about today. There's a reason I bring that up. Because that, that's a very true dynamic that can happen in anyone's life. There can be something down deep that's just a little off base, that even though much of that person's life can be aligned with what's right and what's true and what's good, but ultimately down the road on certain things, they'll find themselves so far off base because what was deeply inside started just to beat off. Let me make it more, more clear. As followers of Christ, we could have everything right in our thinking of who God is but still be just a little off and not have the heart of God inside. More specifically, you could have all of the right thinking and all the right theology and all the right doctrine, but not have the heart of God. In fact, someone could be a faithful follower of God all of their lives. They could have be in church all their lives. They could serve a church. They could lead a church. They could say, yes, I'm a Christian. And have all the right thinking, but not inside have the heart of God. That could be just off. And you say, how does that happen? I think if you thought all the right things, and you'd be right. How does that happen? I want to show you a passage that not only shows how that happens, what it looks like, but it corrects our hearts. 
And so today, it might be a time where even though you've been thinking rightly about God, it may get our, our hearts more aligned with where his heart is. We're in a series called Origins. We're preparing for our 20th anniversary as a church, and we're looking at these moments in our origin story that God has shaped who we are and the key passages and key moments in our church. And I want to show you one of those key passages over the years that have shaped, God has used to shape who we are. It's in the book of Jonah. I want you to open to Jonah chapter 4. If you have a Bible or Bible app, go ahead and open to Jonah chapter 4. Actually, we're going to start in the last verse of chapter 3. It's Jonah 3 verse 10. Here's what it says. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now let's just pause right there for a second in the text. Um, who is the they? What's happening here? We kind of got to one of the crescendos of this book. The they is the people of Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. It's probably the largest city of the day in the known world. It's just by ancient standards, a massive, massive city, a huge uh, metroplex. And they have uh, just been preached to. They have turned to God, turned away from their evil, and God has decided not to bring judgment on them. This is kind of the, right at the end of chapter 3. It's this crescendo of what's happened before that. Now, if you know anything about the story of Jonah, and you may be here and say, look, I don't even, I'm not even clear on a lot of things in the Bible. I don't even know if I'm a Christian. Um, and that's great. I'm glad that you're here. Um, but you probably know something about what the Bible says about this character, Jonah. Let me just give you a quick um, review of, of Jonah. Jonah lives in Israel. He's um, one of God's people. God calls him one day to be a prophet and go preach, but not to the people of Israel. He's to go preach to the Ninevites, the Assyrians that live in Nineveh. By the way, Israel and Assyria are not allies. The Assyrians are enemies. They eventually conquer the northern kingdom of Israel. So when Jonah gets that call, he doesn't go way into the east into Arabia. He gets on the boat and goes way to the west to Tarshish, which would be like modern-day Spain, the tip of Spain or Portugal. He goes all the way the other way. He's supposed to be in the desert on land, but instead he's on water. While, while he's uh, on the water, God appoints a great storm to come in. The storm is terrifying these sailors, these seasoned men from Tarshish. They don't know how they're going to survive. They're throwing the cargo off, off the boat. They're telling everyone to pray. Um, Jonah says, look, I know what the problem is. I'm running from God. I'm the problem. Your only way to stop this, this storm is to throw me overboard. Well, the sailors are a little reluctant to do that, but eventually they realize they have no other choice. They throw Jonah overboard, and as soon as he splashes down, in an instant, the storm goes calm, like unnaturally calm. It's a miracle. And if the sailors were afraid during the storm, now they're terrified because they realize who God is. And at this point, they have a conversion moment and they, they convert to following the God of Israel because they realize his power is not constrained to the land of Israel. He is power over the land and the sea and over all of creation. And they convert, which is, isn't that amazing of God? That even in Jonah's disobedience, God redeems it 
and saves people from the far corner of the known world way in the west. Jonah falls into the water, and this is the most famous part of the story. God then appoints, he appointed a storm, and now he appoints a fish. A large fish comes, swallows Jonah, and brings him down into the deep. And all of Jonah, chapter 2, is a prayer from Jonah. And he says, I feel like I have gone down into death. And he stays there for three days. Now, for some people, and they're reading along in Jonah, or they're hearing the story, they're like, I'm out. Okay, strange large fish swallowing people and they're alive. Um, I don't believe it. And here's what I would say to you. Don't get hung up on the fish. And here's why I would say that. Because the issue really logically speaking is not with miracles like this. You say, oh no, for me it's definitely the miracles. Well, here's how I would push you. Logically, it's not the miracles. Logically, it's a deeper question. Do you believe that there is a higher power of any kind? Because if you believe there's a God a designer who made everything, then clearly there's a being who has the power to work miracles. So the first question is, do you believe in God? If you believe in God, then that answers your question. Now, logically speaking, miracles can happen. Now, whether you believe this miracle happened or not, that's another question, but there's no problem logically with the creator reaching into his creation and causing a large fish to swallow someone and keep them alive. In fact, according to the Bible, he's keeping you alive right now. So there's nothing strange about him keeping someone alive in a fish. So don't get hung up on the fish part of the story. The Jonah gets drawn down into the deep. He's like, I feel like I've gone down into Sheol, down into death, is what he says in Jonah chapter 2. He's there for three days, and after that, the fish comes back up and spits him out alive back on the shore. This time, Jonah goes to Nineveh. Doesn't want to risk it. No telling what else is going to happen, Okay. So he says, okay, I'll go. So he goes, chapter three, he walks into Nineveh and he preaches the worst sermon anyone has ever preached in their life. It's one sentence. He says, in 40 days, God's gonna destroy you and then walks out, that's it. You're going to be destroyed as if it's a foregone conclusion. He's like, you will be destroyed. There's no hope, okay? There's no possibility. He says nothing about God and who he is. No chance of salvation. He just says, you're all dead in 40 days. It's over and walks out. And yet so great is our God that God moves through the whole, whole city. And everyone from the great to the least just repent. They just turn to God just in case he's merciful. They fast, everyone, the men, women, children, animals. They have their animals fast. They all fast, turn to God in repentance and humility. And it says that God, God has mercy on them. So how's Jonah going to respond? I mean, if you're Jonah, I mean, you just preached a one-sentence sermon that wasn't very good, and an entire city turned to God. I mean, that is pretty powerful. That's a powerful moment, and God used you to do it. I mean, you're, you got to be pretty elated. you got to be pretty excited. You know, dear diary, this is one of the greatest moments of my life. I mean, this has got to be an amazing moment that you have been used to turn around a city, the, the biggest city in the world, the most powerful empire, the Assyrian. What does Jonah do to respond to this total revival that breaks out? Let's turn over to chapter 4 and pick it up in verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Well, that's not what we expected. 
See, a lot of times when you're told the story of Jonah, it ends at the end of chapter three, but the whole point of Jonah is really chapter four. That's the whole point of the story. And there's a play on words here I don't want you to miss. See, the words in chapter 3, verse 10, and chapter 4, verse 1, there's a play on words here. The word for evil, as in the word that the Ninevites, they turned from their evil. And the word for disaster, it says God turned from the disaster. So that's actually the same word applied to the Ninevites as it is to God. So um, the Ninevites turned from evil. God turned from his disaster. And then it says it was exceedingly displeased. That word displeased, all three of those words are actually the same word in Hebrew. It's a play on words. It's the word most commonly uh, translated in the Old Testament as evil, but it's got a, a much broader meaning in Hebrew than our English word evil. It means like bad. So let me, if, if it was translated uh, more literally, then it would read something like this. The Ninevites turned away from the bad they were doing. God turned away from the bad he was about to bring upon them. And it was bad to Jonah, exceedingly bad to Jonah. That word exceedingly, put that on the shelf because that's going to appear a couple more times. But here's what I want you to see. Bad is disassociated from the Ninevites disassociated from God in the sense of the wrath that he was going to bring. It's disassociated from God, but it's associated with Jonah. Exceedingly associated with Jonah. He's the odd man out here. Do you see this? He's the bad one of these three. There's something God wants us to see here with this. Let's keep going. Let's um, pick it up in verse, verse two. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please Take my life for me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? You're mad, Jonah, but is that the right thing? Do you have righteous anger here? Is that good anger? So this is really important because this tells us, Jonah's saying, this is why I ran. See, our instincts, if we didn't have chapter 4, we would assume he was afraid. Afraid to walk into the superpower of the known world at this point, the Assyrians, to march in and say, you're all evil. Why would that be particularly terrifying? Well, they're very powerful. And by the way, historically speaking, the Assyrians are notedly brutal and violent. They bragged about it. Like the ancient Assyrians would be proud of that fact. They, the kings would record in great detail all the torturous horrors that they would inflict on the cities that they would conquer. Their thinking was, we'll conquer a city. If they made us fight them, we'll conquer them. And then we'll viciously, grotesquely torture them. I'll spare you the details of some of the things they did. We will grotesquely torture them so that that spreads, the terror of that spreads. So that when we come up on another city, that city's like, wait, is it the Assyrians? Let's just surrender. They were notoriously violent. 
And so you'd think, well, that's why Jonah didn't want to go. You don't want to go to a culture like that and say, hey, you guys are wicked and evil and bad. What are they going to do to Jonah? But that's not why he didn't want to go to Nineveh. He says why right here. He says, I knew you'd do this, God. You'd have mercy on them. Here's what he says. He quotes, he says, I knew that you are gracious and merciful. You are abounding in steadfast love. He's pretty much giving an exact quote from Exodus. It's repeated as one of the most common descriptors of who God is through the Old Testament. He's repeating what it says in Psalms and other places. He's almost an exact quote. Here's what I want you to see. Jonah has good theology. He knows. He accurately knows. He's got the scriptures memorized. He knows what the Bible says about God. But obviously, by the wording, he's the odd man out here. He had, he's got right thinking about God, right doctrine, right theology, but he's obviously not in line with the heart of God. So God's going to want to expose this. He's going to want to expose this to him. So he's going to do some strange things here. Uh, let's pick it up in verse 5, and I'm going to warn you, it gets a little wacky here. Let's pick it up in chapter 4, verse 5. Jonah went out of the city. It's significant. He went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what should become of the city, like a vulture. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was, what's the word right there? Exceedingly, there's that word again. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up, the next day God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorch, scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, watch this, same question again. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. God's going to demonstrate something to Jonah. He appoints some things. Same word of, of appointing a fish. Now he's going to appoint a plant. Jonah goes out. God appoints a plant. I think we should assume this is miraculous like the fish. He appoints a plant. It shoots up and it's covering him in shade. And he says he, he, he's glad about the plant. Why? Because it's, it brings him comfort. It's very clear. He's, it's about his comfort, his personal comfort. He's in the shade. This is in Arabia, remember. Blistering hot. He's glad about the, the shade. It says he's exceedingly glad about the shade. That night, God appoints another thing, a worm. Now this worm starts eating the plant. By the time he wakes up the next day, the plant's completely withered. It's gone the next. There one day, gone the next and then God appoints a scorching east wind, beating down, the sun is beating and baking down on Jonah. And Jonah's in all of his discomfort, but fundamentally he's angry. 
And God says, do you do, you do well to be angry? Same thing. Is, is, your, is your anger, God, uh, uh, Jonah, is your anger justified? Is this a good thing? And Jonah defiantly back, back says, yes, I'm angry enough to die. Take my life from me. That's how angry he is. Now, it hard, seems hard to identify with Jonah at this moment. But before we just dismiss Jonah too quickly, there's a reason God preserved this whole story for us in this text. It's because it actually hits far closer to home for each one of us than we would care to admit. Here's how the story wraps up. Let's read these last two verses. And um, it's unique because it's one of the few books of the Bible that ends very provocatively. It ends with a question. Listen to what it says, verse 10. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? And with that, the book ends. Ends with this question. What's interesting is um, God in the book of Jonah always refers to Nineveh in a certain way. Every time God talks about Nineveh, he says it like this, that great city. He always refers to Nineveh as great. That's a little bit unexpected, right? Nineveh is a wicked city, terribly violent. But God says it's great. Why? He ends with this question for us to think about. There are tens of thousands of humans. It's life there. That's one commonality in every city, a density of life. He says there's human life. There's even animal life there. It's like, should I not love this city, this great city? See, here's what's interesting is the word for exceeding, exceedingly, which is used all the way through uh, Jonah, and the word great, again, that's the same word. So look at the differences of perspectives. Jonah does not have the same heart that God does. Jonah's exceedingly angry that God had mercy on Nineveh. He's exceedingly glad about the plant, but God feels exceedingly about something else. He says, what makes me feel exceedingly is a city full of humans. That's what he feels for. That's what he, he loves. He loves that city. Now, whatever happened to Jonah, maybe you're wondering, like, well, what happened next with, with Jonah? It leaves with just such a, a cliffhanger. Um, here's what we can, we, we can perceive. Jonah was transformed at that moment. He turned his life around. Not only does thinking from that moment forward align with God, but his heart shifted and his heart aligned with God. How do we know that? Because we have the book of Jonah. He wrote it down. He passed it down. Sometimes what needs to happen in someone who knows God, they may know things correctly about God, 
But, but they're, they're, so much of what they do aligns with the things of God, but there's something deep down that's off base, and so they find themselves way far away from God and angry about it and not even understanding or not even seeing that they're far from God. They may know everything correctly about God, but their heart doesn't beat for the things that God's heart beats for. That's the story of Jonah. But someone's heart can be turned around. And God arranged the moments, these moments for Jonah's heart to be turned around. See, here's what this tells us about what is the heart of God? What does God, what does God's heart beat for? What does he feel exceedingly for? What do we know about God? This is what this book teaches us about God. God has an untamed and disrupting love for the city. God has an untamed and disrupting love for the city. It's untamed in that it doesn't fit neatly in our little boxes, in our little expectation. He has this love that is sometimes even feels like it's wild, it's reckless, it's, it's, uh, it breaks down barriers, it breaks down obstacles. It's an incredible, unfathomable, surprising type of love. You, you can't fit it into human expectation. It's untamed, but it's also disrupting. There's things it breaks down from the human experience and human expectations. It disrupts things in us. God has an untamed and disrupting love for the city. This is something that began to take, to really get a hold of our church from passages, especially the book of Jonah and others. Over the years, we've realized who he's called us to be as a church. We're to be a church for the city. And, and it's, it started initially, as you've heard over the last several weeks, we knew what our mission was. Jesus gave us our mission. Our mission is to go and make disciples or make mathetes is the ancient Greek word. We're called to see people that give their entire lives over to Jesus. They basically say, I renounce everything. It's all yours, Jesus. I'm all in following you. That's what our mission is to make mathetes. That's what Jesus told us to do. Go make disciples. Well, then what do we mean by mathetes? The scripture tells us a mathetes is three things. A mathetes is first rescued. We've discovered that we have been saved. We have not saved ourselves. God has saved us. And that has transformed our life A to Z, like we talked about a few weeks ago. We, a mathetes is not only rescued, a mathetes is awestruck. Pastor Justin talked about this a couple weeks back. We are continually and deeply more and more awed by God as we realize where we stand before God, bankrupt before him, and that all Worship before God drives our entire life, our lives. And then the third thing we talked about last week, every mathetes is mobilized. We're rescued, we're awestruck, we're mobilized. Every mathetes has a mission. We're part of the great calling to further God's kingdom. We know what our mission is. But over the last several years, we've realized what our vision is. If we do that faithfully, what should we expect him to to do, And as we look through the scripture, like passages like here in Jonah or later in Acts, when they go city to city to city, and when the gospel strikes down in that city, the city's turned upside down. So what we should expect is we and other churches are faithfully making mathetes here in our city. We should expect and wait for and pray for and hope for that our city may be transformed. That's his vision that we're pursuing after. And you know, that's grabbed a hold of us as a church. And, and I want to speak directly to you students for a second. Because students, you in many ways have led the way for the rest of us as a church. Many years ago, the way we would do camp is we'd take students away to a conference center and they'd hear the best preachers and the best worship leaders and the best entertainers and they'd get fired up and then come back. 
And we decided to do something risky. Um, we, several years ago, we shifted and said, you know what, instead of doing all that, we're going to deploy our students during camp to serve their city. And we were not sure how it would be received and how the students would respond. And when they first heard it, they were disappointed about not doing what they're used to. But after that first camp, the students were begging us to continue doing uh, mission camps. Our, our student ministry had caught the vision for serving the city. And so it carried into the, even this year as we deployed our students out, deployed you all out into the city. And you served in your schools, like at Cooper City High School, and you, you served in, in landscaping there and blessing the teachers and preparing the students at Pines, um, Pines Charter Middle and preparing the students to be encouraged as they come back with how you decorated the hallways to inspire them. And, and you prepared for students in foster care by packing over 100 backpacks, getting them ready as they're going back to school. And those that are uh, underprivileged students that are going to go to school and, and they can't afford lunches, but there's a program for them to have lunches. You packed lunches in partnership with a ministry here in our city to prepare those that are the neediest in your school. See, here's what you have captured the vision for students. It's not one day when you grow up, you will be a missionary. You are a missionary right now in one of the most important mission fields there is in our city. And you have, you have access to places that the rest of us don't, and you are carrying the gospel into the city. And one of the most exciting things from the past few days, students, is not only seeing you catch a fire for your mission, but catch a fire for your Savior. And every single night, seeing more and more of you come to faith and seeing more and more of you worship your Savior. What a powerful moment. And, and thank you for how, what you model to the rest of your church family. Thank you for what you do. Church, yeah, let's cheer them on. Church, I want to I wanna just give you a sneak peek. Um, many of you volunteers just exhausted yourself over the last several, several days serving our students. But, um, but for the rest of you, in, in some ways, each one of us are involved. Maybe you give generous, generously or maybe you, you brought some supplies generously. So this is something one way or another was an all-hands-on-deck moment. And I want you to share in, in the celebration of what happened the last couple days. Check out this, this video. telling the church is that you need to crave for Jesus to reign in your heart and in your mind and in every area of your life. So where should your focus be on students? What should it be on? Christ reigning and ruling in your life.
You know, students, that is our prayer for you. Man, one thing, one thing, if Christ, if Christ could reign in your life, man, that's our prayer over you, that he doesn't reign over your life for three days or four days, but he takes over every part of your life. That's our prayer for you. A church, can that be said of us too? Can that be said of us? That's our, our vision and our mission is to see South Florida transformed. Like our students are already taking up that mantle, but church, it's for us. Our work has just begun. To give our lives, to give these next decades to see South Florida transformed by the power of the gospel. See, because God has an untamed love for the city, but it's also a disrupting love for the city. And so that means if we're gonna have Christ reign over our lives, if we're gonna have a mission to go into the city, we're gonna have to let the love, God's love for the city disrupt some things in our lives. Are we open to that? Because there's, there's three things that it disrupt for Jonah. Can I just give them to you really quickly? Because this is the question. Here's the first thing. God's love for the city disrupts our biases. God's love for the city disrupts our biases. See, here's what God said about the city. He said, should I not love? Are you saying I should not love that great city? He said, look how many people are there. There's 120,000 in church. What then, if God is saying that about the wicked, violent city of Nineveh, which is small by modern standards, what then does he say about our city, South Florida? As he looks at Miami and, and Pembroke Pines and Cooper City and Fort Lauderdale, and as he looks at our cities, what does he say when he says millions and millions and millions of people? What does he say about our city? He must say something about our city. It's, it exceedingly grabs a hold of his heart. But what do we say about our city? Do we say, well, as long as he doesn't have mercy on that group of people, that would surprise me. Yeah, but God's love is untamed. You can't put it in your box. It's a sweeping love for human beings who are made in his image. And see, here's what, here's what Jonah didn't get. He was right thinking. He knew about who God was theologically, doctrinally. He could quote the verses. You're merciful and gracious, slow to anger. You're, you're steadfast in your love. But here's what he missed. And this made his, his thinking right about God, but his heart far from God. From far, heart far from beating the way God's heart beats. He didn't realize that for God to have that kind of mercy for Nineveh, he had forgotten that he had first had that kind of heart for Jonah and his people. Listen to what Nehemiah chapter 9 says hundreds of years later when they're back from exile after the wrath they had to endure for their disobedience. Nehemiah is remembering all the way back when they were wandering in the wilderness and look what he says. He says, but they are, and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments, God. Did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. 
the only reason Jonah is still there is that God had first had grace and mercy for him and his people. So let me ask you, has God's love for our city disrupted your biases? Because Jonah saw the Ninevites as his enemies. God saw the Ninevites as people he dearly loved and wanted to reach. So who do you perceive as your enemies? What's the group of people that you would say, they are my enemies? They're the ones I'm against. They're the ones I'm trying to fight against. They're the ones I'm combative against. Who would you say are your enemies? Because the world very quickly puts us into different boxes with enemies. So who are your enemies? People who voted differently than you? People who look differently than you? Come from a different part of the city than you? have a different cultural background than you, a different economic background, different educational background, think differently than you, believe differently than you. Because what this, his love for the city does is it disrupts our self-righteousness and we realize the whole city is full of sinful people, including me. We all need his grace and mercy. And so because of that, what we see, Paul says in Ephesians, he says, let me tell you who your enemies are. It's not flesh and blood. It is the evil principalities, the, the evil, the Satan and his demons. We don't war against flesh and blood. So if you think your war is against another person, that's bad doctrine. That person is a child God loves and wants to use you to reach. So when can we stop viewing other humans as our enemies and start viewing them and have the heart towards them the way God has a heart towards them, to reach them, someone made in their image, and draw them to their only hope? God's love for the city disrupts our biases. God's love for the city disrupts our comforts. God says to Moses, you feel exceedingly for a plant because it made you feel comfortable. I feel exceedingly for a city that I see is great. You know, something part of our story is that we've felt a calling to the city and yet the reality of where our, this campus is is the farthest point from the city centers of Miami and Fort Lauderdale which is part of our passion to move back in towards the cities, was part of the celebration of moving into Cooper City. It's one step closer to moving in towards the rest of the city because there's something that can happen in the suburbs where someone can use the city to get comforts for themselves rather than love the city and being willing to enter back into the mess and reach it. And so what we have to disrupt in ourselves is what do we feel more for? Do we feel for something silly like a plant that makes us comfortable? 
Do we feel for the comforts in our lives? Are we more bothered when something breaks, a car breaks down, or, or, we, or a piece of clothing rips, or a couch stains, or, or the, the bank account is a little lower than we wanted, or something rusts or goes out of style, or something gets stolen? Are we more upset? Do we feel exceedingly about stuff that feed our comforts, or do we have the heart of God that says, no, what disrupts me, what I feel exceeding about is that there are millions and millions of people who do not know their savior that's what keeps me up at night that's what this passage disrupts it the love god's love for the city it disrupts our comforts and causes us to be realigned with the heart of god god's love for the city does one other thing it disrupts our biases our comforts god's love for the city disrupts our small dreams Jonah walks out in the city and his message to the city is, God's going to destroy you. He had no vision. He had no hope. He knew about God, but had no expectation that God would actually work that out in the city. You know, sometimes um, people who can know the power and mercy of God know that we have a, a living hope in Jesus Christ who defeated sin and death and reigns over all as the King of kings and Lord of lords that every knee will bow and tongue confess the extent of their vision for the city and society and culture is simply this it's just going down the tubes well, we, what should I think of this world? Well, we're losing it, we're far from God it's, maybe it'll never turn back maybe everything's going to be destroyed and there's no expectation and hope built on who our God is and the joy and hope and expectation that if he's placed one church, and it's not just City Rev, there's other churches, but if he had only placed us here, that should cue us that he has called us to a city and he is about to move. So can it disrupt our small dreams and give us vision of what could happen in South Florida if he actually transformed a city in our generation, a city that has global reach? Because if you, can, if you can see South Florida transformed by the gospel, it affects this whole region of the globe. Expand your, your, your vision and don't settle for small dreams of, of what you're going to make with your small corner of your life. What's a little kingdom you're going to build? But have bigger dreams of what God may be at work doing, which will then expand your dreams to God. I'm going to then leverage my life, my business, the industry I'm in, my friend group, my neighborhood. Whatever I can, I'm going to leverage this to be used. I want to be a part of the historic work you're doing here in my city. Could it be that God could disrupt our small dreams and give us a vision for a city because our heart begins to beat like his does for a city that he loves? But I want to end with this. Some of you might be here and you don't have a vision for how that incredible love is applied to you. If he loves Nineveh, if he loves Assyria, if his heart breaks for the Ninevites, you're not too far gone. You're not far from his love. In fact, if you're listening to this now, maybe you're at home all by yourself, maybe you're over in Cooper City, maybe you're here. If you're hearing this now, it's because God wants you to hear of his love because you know what his love is like for you? A father waiting for his child to come home. 
He's a, it says his love is so great the heavens couldn't contain it for you. It says that his love, it, it's, it's like it's, it's unimaginable, it's unfathomable, it's untamed, it's, it's this reckless kind of love, it's steadfast, this chesed type of love that you can't fathom. It's a covenant towards you that will never quit. His love, it's, it's hard for us to grasp the depth and the height and the width and the length of his love, but he wants you to know his love for you. He's waiting to receive you back with open arms. Respond to his love. And if you think the the Ninevites received mercy. Receive his mercy and his grace. Find salvation today. Can we bow our heads together and close our eyes? If today you want to find salvation and meet the mercy and love of God, and I want to lead you in a simple prayer, would you just simply right there in your seat just silently pray this? God, I want to be saved. I believe in who you are. You're a gracious God. And I believe that you have love for me. And so I trust in the work that you've done through Jesus. Thank you for saving me. I want to be a mathetes. I'm all in following you. In Jesus' name, amen. If that was your prayer just then, here's what I want you to do. Um, I want you to respond in a certain way. I want you to let us know so we can put a Bible in your hands. If you're watching online, I want you to go to cityrev.org slash faith. You can click on it there on the screen. Go there on your cell phone. If you're watching in Cooper City, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pull Pastor Justin or one of the leaders aside after, after the service. If you're here at the West Pines campus, I want you to grab that Get Connected card. There's a space you can say that I put my faith in Jesus. I want you to fill that out. I want you to put that in one of the offering boxes as you leave. We want to follow up with you. We'd love to put a Bible in your hands. In fact, if you're here and you go by guest services, we'll put you a Bible in your hands today. Church, we're going to close in a song. And um, the song is the cry that Isaiah responded. God said, whom shall I send to the city? And Isaiah said, here I am, send me. That is our cry. He's called us to be a church for the city that we might reveal Jesus and so that our city may be revolutionized. And so we're going to respond with, here we are. We will go into the city in your name. We surrender to you. We make ourselves available to your call. Let's stand and declare that back to Jesus. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.